You sound okay. better than ever. I, like uh, you got a whole new sound booth. Well, I have a new audio interface. Oh, what'd you get? It's actually it's it's not good. It's um, <laughs> downgraded audio. <laughs> but it's, if it sounds better than. <laughs> got the um, PreSonus AudioBox USB 96. Okay, I don't, I don't know that one, but you're saying it's worse than what you had? You Did you have the same thing as me? Did you have a focus right before? Yeah, and it fried one day, uh, just pre, randomly. PreSonus. It's fine. It right. is fine. My very first in, interface was, was PreSonus as well, and it was fine. But My, then I got the focus right, and I was like, oh, this is great. My very first audio interface was the uh, Tascam uh, quarter-inch tape deck recorder that's what i really miss oh yeah when you get like yeah. eight, eight tracks down to like a, a tiny little uh, recording over my ace of bass <laughs> uh you know that's how i'd uh, make my garage band recordings before there was apple garage band sounds incredible actually i mean it sounded terrible but but that was my no, fault I mean, not the, uh, <laughs> just fun it just sounds fun oh it's, yeah it brings back good memories oh for sure it, it was more fun we've, we've lost it all in this horrible digital age I mean, if we could have been doing these podcasts on tape, just think of it, then we'd be making mixtapes and handing it out to all our friends. And they'd have that sweet hiss. Yeah, I think you mean to say warmth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we just we just jumped on this, but uh, we're slightly back. I've had a lot of people ask if cameras or whatever is over, and um, I didn't want to ever say that it was because I want to just surprise them and show up. So here we are again. Yes. But, but we didn't plan this at all. We didn't like make a plan for this episode. I just um, yeah. wanted to make sure that we talked again because i had noticed i mean this is just me talking to you camera nobody's listening right now but people have been downloading our show <laughs> while we've been away so the, yeah. the last few episodes actually have the most downloads like they have they are uh you know like triple what we were getting when we were doing this regularly so that's fascinating and you know like i i i see some of those that, that come through twitter and whatnot like but then there's also occasionally people that just randomly ping me on Instagram. They're like, "Oh my god, I love the podcast! Please do more." Man, that's so awesome. I, yeah. I I'm like, I'm really glad it, it eventually resonated with people. I mean, people people have listened to it. But, it's funny, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it I, funny. I mean, I know a few things. I was thinking of talking about um, other gear has come out. There's like mm-hmm. new cannons and a new Nikon. Was there? I kind of forgot. <laughs> not not because they're bad, just because I, like I always say I never follow up on Nikon. I just like I see it and I'm like that's so good, but then I kind of forget to like really investigate it. I thought for sure you were going to be excited to talk about the Z7. You, are you? You should tell tell me about the get me excited about it. <laughs> I'm fairly excited about that it. That Z7 sounds great. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. Um I think that the so I w- I went to like a a brand showcase that was tailored to the photojournalist uh cla- I guess I guess just the photojournalist class of DC you know just mm-hmm. like at the museum which is a is a really well known uh, news museum as you'd probably suspect and it was really cool there was like a it was like really high and event and lots of catering and they probably had about 30 of the cameras with all of their flagship lenses so everybody had a chance to to handle them and talk to a representative and also take home some really nicely put together literature and then they did a, a talk with some well-known photographers as well and who were talking about their 
test phase using the cameras and how much they appreciated them. And it was, it was nice because they were also honest. Did they say bad things? Yeah. They talked about the things that they, that they didn't like as much that the Nikon rep was understanding of that. And then also said, you know, these are things that that are going to definitely be worked out in the future, you know, maybe even through firmware. We'll see. But, you know, some of the things that, that I wanted to know was, you know, how responsive was it? You know, because especially for shooting uh, events and action and stuff like that, was it, was it did it work? And I mean, that was kind of the point of them having this event was to get the photojournalists excited about it. You know, because I think that that was the hard group to sell, photojournalists and also sports shooters, right? I mean, they're pretty demanding as far as any category of photographer goes. They, they need it to work extremely well all the time at a mm-hmm. moment's notice. No and it has to be weather sealed yeah. and, you know, all of that business. And so from what I could gather, like it, it is sealed and, and apparently it's, it's, it's a great camera. Um, I have heard things about the, the tracking lagging behind the, the, some of the, like the D5 and the, and the D850. So maybe that's not the best thing, but like I said, and I, I'm curious whether or not that could be something that could be fixed in firmware. So were you able to shoot with it actually, or you were just observing other people shooting with it? Yeah, I um, yeah, I got to to take some shots off and and get a feel for a couple different things. Uh, what I did is, you know, I put it into the the settings that I would normally use in in such a, an environment, which I'm very familiar with. So I put an aperture priority and uh, messed around with the, the EVs and you know just got a feel for it. It was it felt like an icon. It was instantly recognizable which is great. The thing that I was really impressed with, uh, especially because I've been doing a lot of these uh, events lately for the government where, you know, whenever I click, like, I feel like the whole room, you know, is like, notices me. Yeah. Well, they don't, they, they get used to it. Right. But like the first couple clicks, it's like, Oh my God. There's a record scratch. Um, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. And, and you're, you're just kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over here. <laughs> and, and then you're like, you think that people are just aware of you, which is not something I like mm-hmm. as a photographer. I don't like people being aware of me. I like to just be able to capture everything and, and move stealthily and quietly. Yeah. It's about them, not you. Exactly. And, um, and so, you know, I was playing with it and the thing that immediately turned me off was the electronic viewfinder, like the delay when you take the photo and it, it pops up the photo and then you're wanting to take the next photo. And I was like, whoa, this is awful. Like, what mm. the hell's going on? And they're like, oh, you can turn that off. And I was like, oh, and, you know, because I, I had been just listening to them talk about how you can get, you know, like the nine frames per second or whatever of 47 megapixel images. And I'm like, wow, you know. And then I was like fronted with that and it just stopped me cold. And then they were like, oh, you just turn it off. And then we turned it off and I was like, oh yeah, this works. Well, then did it work like, so this is a complaint I've had for a while. There isn't really a DSLR setting a lot on a lot of these mirrorless where you can say, okay, show me the photo before I take it. And then once it's taken, display it on the back of the camera, but let me keep shooting if I keep my eye up to it, right? Only show me the back if I look, don't interrupt it in the viewfinder. But it seems to be that it's either review the image or don't review the image. And that's it. Yeah, I didn't get to, I think to that's, dig in. I that think that's far. what they're still all doing. I haven't seen any that do what I want them to do. But you know, I don't know. I've been I've been getting kind of used to it on, on the Sony anyway, because the delay is better. So I, I didn't I haven't tried this Nike on, so I, I don't know if it's better or worse, I guess. But um Well, I can tell you this. So I then went into the quiet mode. Was silent mode, 
and legitimately you you don't hear anything. <laughs> it's just dead silent and it fires super fast. I reviewed the photo. I did a couple bursts and I was like kind of moving around. Uh, I was shooting with a 105, you know, so I wanted it to be a little bit of a longer lens and see how it was going to respond. Um, and everything was just rad. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I was like, okay, sold. Um, and then, you know, uh, Wait, when you say sold, you didn't buy one of these, did you? No, I didn't buy <laughs> okay. one. I, I was just sold on, on the concept and then metaphorically. Um, yeah. I guess the next thing I heard about was that the battery rating was terrible, but the other information I've heard from people using it is that you get way more than what they're saying you'll get. You know, like heard people saying that like, you know, the, the battery's rated for like two hours of shooting or something like that. And people were getting a, a whole day of right. shooting out of it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like uh, just holding it, using it, even the menus seemed improved. Uh, yeah, it's just it was it was wicked. I was definitely really, really stoked about it. A lot of the stuff just makes me think of the first generation issues we've been seeing with everybody. So, you know, Sony had so many of these same issues um, and are only past them because they've been iterating faster. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff you're mentioning as well, a bunch of those problems seem to be on the canon too. Well, you know, I think that one of the things that I was most concerned about with Nikon doing this, before I'd actually seen it and it was just Rumorville, um, I was just concerned that Nikon was going to, you know, put out an inferior product to Sony. Mm-hmm. You know, not something that you'd even say like, oh yeah, this this does compete, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's not what we got. It's it's a badass camera. Sweet. And you know, and also, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but you know, it, you can shoot uh, log finally um, with an Nikon, mm-hmm. like this one, and apparently, and uh, yeah, I'm just you know, the, to be complete, completely honest, <laughs> the videos that they showed us. You know, like I definitely saw things that were like, uh, that feels DSLR to me. Um, and so I'm not fully convinced on the video front yet. Um, we'll see. What would you do right now if somebody just pushed all of the, the current Nikon lineup in front of you and they're like, look, you can just walk away and just shoot with any of these and this, is, this can be your camera for the next year. Which one would you pick up at this moment? Oh, absolutely. To pick up the D7 or the Z7. Hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Cool. That's, yeah. I mean, that says a lot. I think so. I mean, because you know, on the on the flip side, the D eight fifty is is you know, arguably the the best, if not one of the best DSLRs ever produced. Yeah, it's everything and probably I hear. the last. You know, the interesting thing is is that everybody that I know that has one is like they're over the moon. Mm-hmm. They're like this thing is just it's the camera. And I got to uh, <laughs> funny actually. Uh, I ran into Rob Sylvan. In New York last month, I ran into Rob Sylvan in New York. Like, I know. Oh, wait, yours was yours random too? Like it was a coincidence? Mine was not as random. Oh. We had a Stocksy meetup. Oh, okay. Mine was really random. So he had just finished doing Photo Plus, and he was supposed to be going home. Let's explain who Rob Sylvan is for anybody listening. Yeah, you do it. Well, so Rob Sylvan has worked with both of us for years. We go back to iStock mm-hmm. Photo. We know him, and he's one of the nicest human beings I've met in my life. And yeah, we worked together for a long time at Stocksy, but uh, he, now his focus is all about, well, he's always done this, but his focus more on teaching Lightroom. He uh, works for Adobe a lot of the time and also writes and publishes books about photography and uh, and Lightroom. And I will back that up that he is 
just one of the most fabulous people, isn't he? That you'll ever he he's really he's top ten. Top why, ten humans. Why is why isn't he on this episode? Anyway, tell me your story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he he um, ended up making it out to our meetup, and he brought his D850, and you know, like as soon as he pulled it out, I was like, damn. And I started ogling it, and and you know, I had a I had a stupid film camera. <laughs> <laughs> ancient technology yeah and uh while we were you know we we went to a restaurant with the group and we were all just hanging out and and i was like let me play and he handed it over and had a a nikon 50 with a 1.4 and the place where we were at was just it was low light like super low light and i I cranked it up to like 6400 and then to 12500 and was shooting at 1.4 with his 50 and like everything was just awesome (laughs) and just using it and how responsive the the focus was and just like just the handling of it the newer nikons the newer pro nikons have a a focus trackpad like a joystick on the back which none of mine have and that joystick is the best thing that anybody's ever done like i don't know why it took so long for somebody to figure that out but the trackpads that we've been using forever mm-hmm. are just they're inferior and and at this point they seem really dumb mm. when you use that joystick it's like are you kidding me like why did it take so long to figure this out no, I, this I haven't is, used it yet but and I'll, it's tiny I'll, I'll use that as a moment to insert uh just a complaint in case you forget about it later about mm-hmm. sony's is that there's all these things that have gotten so much better. There's a lot of good things to say about it, but the, all those physical controls as they've been adding them, right? They added the little joystick, which is very necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way those things operate and the way you press them and move them still feels like garbage, like, it, or not garbage, but it's, it, they feel like cheap cameras. What you would find in a $1,000 camera, not a $2,000 camera or $3,000. I know exactly camera, what you, know? you mean. And, and that's, that's really not, satisfactory yeah. you know like that's yeah, something that needs to be on point mm-hmm. and the nikon as far as the, the two times i've well three times now that i've i've been able to actually mess with the joystick it's felt perfect well, okay so wait what would you choose about the mirrorless option like why would you potentially go with it small <laughs> that can go a long way but really that's that's the big thing is the that's the big thing yeah, yeah. i mean it's certainly i you know, I have all, I have so much glass, right? So like, it, it's not like a super convenient thing for me to have to have the, the adapter. Uh, Nikon put in a new flange finally. They finally built a new flange for the, for the Z series. And mm-hmm. it's going to be what they roll with from now on. It's, it's great because it's, it's a lot wider. So you can, they can build faster lenses finally. Cause you know, they've been, as far as autofocus is concerned, they've been uh, restricted to 1.4 for all these years. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, they made a, I think it's, God, is it, is it an 85 or a 105? I think it might be a 105. I can't remember. Or maybe it's a 50. I don't know. Anyway, they made a a, a new knocked lens. No, it's oh, 58. I, yeah, I heard that. And it's 0. 0.95. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, the thing looks, it looks like a, a work of art. It's, it does not look like a Nikon. It's weird. That it's sounds huge. great. huge. Yeah. And, and, uh, and apparently it's just the best lens. So yeah, I haven't tried it, obviously. <laughs> well, my I'll, com- never, I'll never try it. Uh, how, how big are these lenses? My big complaint about what Canon decided to do is they've got these, in- they've got these insanely beautiful new RF mount lenses. Um, mm-hmm. All the samples I've seen, I don't know if you've looked at any of it, but 
they're taking incredible photos. Like Canon finally has a truly great 50 millimeter mm-hmm. and they oh, cool. have a, a, what is it? 24 to 72.0. Some very nice new options that are, are, you know, genuinely interesting and compelling and make you a little bit jealous if you're shooting any of the other full frame cameras. But at the same time, they're all enormous. So the appeal of having this smaller camera kind of start that you, you get a lot less of those gains than you might be expecting. And this is somebody that hasn't shot with it yet, but a lot of what I've liked about the Sony is being able to put smaller lenses on it. And there are giant Sony lenses for sure. Like there, there are a bunch of big ones, but there are some uh, quite a few beautiful small lenses. So you can kind of follow through with the whole form factor feeling more compact and more compressed. And it seems like if you don't have any smaller choices, then kind of what's the point, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and when I look at the options that have been available from Leica for years, Leica's had so many compact, beautiful lenses that there's, there's absolutely no compromise in quality just because it's smaller. Manual focus, aren't they? Sure. But I don't think it's the focus (laughs) mechanism that's making these cannons so big. I mean, there's tons of glass in there. It's like, because they can make a yeah. focus mechanism small in a cheaper lens, right? Those, like a 50 millimeter, the cheap, you know, what are they called? Like the, the 1.8 STM lens from Canon is tiny and light. And right. it's the glass that keeps it light or makes it big. And for some reason, they only did these giant ones. And I mean, still, yeah, okay, you are shaving off some weight. It would be lighter than on a DSLR, but it it takes some of that excitement away from me when I'm like, okay, so instead of, I'm really only shedding one or two pounds here instead of the potential five pounds. <laughs> no, wait, I guess the whole camera got, weighs five pounds. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't really think of how heavy these things are, but you know what I mean, that there's a much more substantial reduction when you get a smaller lens package like Sony's been doing or, I mean, Panasonic, but I guess those are cropped sensors, so it's kind of different. Yeah, well, the Nikons are big too, too big. But yeah. Canon's lenses have kind of always been too big and mm-hmm. even bigger than Nikon's. So yeah, I'm starting to really be sick of big lenses. It's I I have I still haven't bought any serious lenses for my Sony. I've been shooting the Sony. It's been what like four years that I've had a Sony now, and I have I still only really I still only own two lenses, and one of them is a pretty cheap ultra wide. The what is it ten to eighteen millimeter f four. And that was, you know, that's a vlogging lens. Like, it's not a very serious lens. It only shoots cropped. And then the 28 millimeter 2.0 is still what I'm using all the time on that thing because I don't really want to spend the money on another 24 to 70. Uh, you know, it's it's because it's basically similar. They're, they're all great. You know, the Canon mm-hmm. 24 to 70 is amazing. The, Ni- the Nikon is amazing. They're, I assume, you know, they're all great. Um, I don't it's feel like... amazing. I, yeah, but like, I don't really need another equivalent one for another, what, $2,000 for the Sony. I'm sure, I don't know how expensive it is, but it, they're all very expensive and they're all enormous. And I'm not going to carry around both. And I don't feel confident enough in Sony yet to jump to another, to switch brands. So it's, I've been in this weird state of only using one kind of s- strange <laughs> lens choice this whole time that I've been shooting my Sony. Well, I, I'm curious to see what the future holds for these because you know this the the launch lenses that came with this system um there's only the one that's it's like a pro lens the other ones are prosumer lenses yeah, i'm looking at the yeah. photos here and they all they all look prosumer i don't 
Mm, I should have. I should have looked up. I should have known you were going to talk about Nikon and done my research first. Damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean they they don't look special. The fifty eight is interesting. It looks more like a well. They look. It looks more like a Sigma art mm. in the style, but it also kind of looks like a. No, it actually looks more like a Zeiss. Yeah, it's a nice looking lens. It's actually that's my same complaint with what Sigma's been doing. Uh, they so they finally brought their art lenses over to Sony, made a native Sony mount, but they're all bigger. It's it, like they they basically just added that extra flange distance inside of the lens mount instead of having an external adapter. Your whole lens gets a little bigger; it gets the size of the adapter. So now you're just slapping these enormous lenses onto these much smaller cameras, and it's that's just not what I want. I want. I want to use the fact that it's a smaller camera and have that actually be somewhat of an advantage. Um, but they, so Sigma has announced that they're going to make optimized smaller lenses for Sony, which is amazing. I mean, that might be when I start investing in Sony lenses is when Sigma has a lineup of small options for it. Well, I think that Sigma, the, those third party producers are so good these days that they're going to force the the brands to, do something better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's the really exciting thing about where all the technology has taken us to this point, right? Is that all the, they keep pushing each other to do cool stuff because the competition demands it. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, the competition has just gotten crazy. Like somebody, somebody's going to get knocked out of the market in the next, next five years for sure. Um, you know, I think, the, the market is shrinking and some people and the structure of it is growing. You know, mm-hmm. Sony is taking over. They're now the number one full frame uh, com- uh, manufacturer in the U S um, you know, things are just shifting so much. Um, you know, it, it just won't be a recognizable landscape soon. It already isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's already crazy that we are where we are. It doesn't even make sense. I don't know. I really don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. There's some funny psychology that goes around brand loyalty you know i can't i can't actually even believe that i've been loyal to nikon this long it's actually kind of funny to me they've never given me a damn thing well but the, <laughs> the biggest thing is that people uh, people underrate momentum like it's much easier not to change than to change it, mm-hmm. it, both financially and effort wise and learning wise i mean there is always a huge downside to switching brands and I think sometimes ter- people turn that into saying that like they love the brand or being really defensive about the brand or, you know, becoming a fanboy. But mm-hmm. they think they're, what they're mistaking is it's like, no, it's just, it's really hard to switch. It could be expensive to switch. So you don't want to, and you want to keep liking where you are currently. But, um, and so often I'll have this frustration when I see, you know, if Canon's lagging behind in a certain place, and I want them to be adding the features that I'm seeing everywhere else. I'm just mad at Canon. It just makes me because I'm not. I'm still not going <laughs> to switch. It doesn't even matter if Sony's outpacing them in one area. I still have all my Canon lenses, and it'd be incredibly painful to switch. So yes. I, you know, I just want I want everybody to have all the best features. So then you can just choose the one that feels right. But obviously, exactly. obviously, it's not at all where we are. I think it's hysterical. I mean, I watched so many people jump from one ship to the next ship back to the other ship and then you know to whatever the new one is oh, man, totally. and 
And then, you know, the other thing that, I, that from my perspective, I guess my position is that I get to watch people, you know, go through those, the pain of trying to learn a new system. Something I've been trying to figure out, maybe you have some insight is, um, mm-hmm. I posted a video a little while ago comparing the dynamic range of my Canon to the new line of iPhones and uh, just just kind of showing that like what the HDR stacking can do and that now right out of camera on your phone, it'll start to f- like just feel like there's more dynamic range because of, of what it's able to do. And I had all this blowback that I didn't expect saying, like, well, of course it's going to have more dynamic range. You're using a Canon. And... <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, I've seen the comparisons of dynamic range between the Sony sensors, which includes uh, the Nikons, right? So D850 Sony, mm-hmm. Sony sensor, basically the same as the, what is the A7R3, I guess. I think they're all the same, which is an incredible sensor. Of course, it's great. But like when I compare that dynamic range, what I've seen, and this is um, this is a question for you, is a pretty marginal difference. It's mostly that if you underexpose a lot, like you really shoot to expose the highlights correctly, you're given more latitude in the noise. So as you bring the exposure up, the noise doesn't increase as much. So you have kind of more flexibility in, in bringing back an underexposed image on a Sony. Less, Much mm-hmm. less of that on a Canon. But I don't actually see any significant additional dynamic range that, you know, the clouds would have been there on the Sony and they're blown out on the Canon. Am I wrong? I don't know. Maybe you haven't looked at these tests. Uh, well, I've seen the tests and I've seen real results. Mm-hmm. And I think that, well, I mean, it's true that, that the Sony sensor has more dynamic range, mm-hmm. right? Do you see it in a normally exposed image, though? No. Yeah. No, that's of the, course not. That's the thing. That's like That's what... I think everybody was the most wrong about if you, if you're just kind of shooting the way everybody shoots, like most people don't usually shoot. So the image is two stops under so that it looks like total garbage okay, until you recover it. It's not just that though. It's, it's how you, sh- how you utilize the light, mm-hmm. you know, like if, if the light isn't ideal, see, I think this is, this is why you're struggling with this comparison is because you utilize light very well you're a really good photographer. <laughs> and so like the way that you see the light and use it with your camera, like you're not going to, to, to use it poorly. You just don't. Mm-hmm. I've been watching you for a long time. And I think that most, you know, a lot of people just don't have that consistency with, with how they use the light. Mm-hmm. And so I do see a lot of times when, you know, where you definitely see the the limitations. I do, because I, I see a wider range of, of photography. And so, you know, I think that there are definitely times where I do recognize it. Right. When it's in just kind of poorer lighting situations. Yeah. Well, but I think that, that some people might even call those uh, bunny ears normal mm-hmm. situations, because layman kind of mm-hmm. normal situations that people take photos in. So, I mean, I, I can see why it would be harder for you to to make that connection because I just don't think that you take bad photos. You don't well, take. I take, you a, don't, I take a lot of bad photos, but sure. <laughs> but I, I guess I, t- I take your your point um, of just people yeah. that are less confident or comfortable in uh, working their way around their camera or around light. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's but but at the same time, I see 
I see plenty of people that do the same thing with the Nikon and the Nikon still doesn't save it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. You it's know. just that to me, all of these, any current generation of major camera brands, most people will not identify which one's which. You know, there's not enough of a difference that people are going to spot the difference in the final processed image at the size that it gets published at, which is typically not a billboard. I, I totally agree. I think that the only time that I can spot it is when viewing it at 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and which that's is when part I start of your to, job, so. Yeah, and that's when I start to see, like, oh, they're using Fuji. <laughs> what's the downside of Fuji? Like, what's a, what's a negative Fuji quality aspect you can see? Well, the Fuji sensor, the X-Trans sensor, is actually pretty good. It responds to low light pretty well, and, you know, it's got good color. And, you know, like, I think that the people who really know how to use those cameras are, you know, it's fantastic. Um, but the the pattern of the the pixel pattern is different than what is it is it the non bear pattern uh, I'm not i don't remember which which the, i i'll be faking it if i try to use the right words so yeah but basically it's just like if you have you know four colors within a within a square mm-hmm. like four quarters the fuji has i guess three um and one like neutral or or something like that. Like I, I guess it, it chooses, it decides to pick up one of those dominant colors within that pixel or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, this is uh, it's really <laughs> layman. Like I'm not, this is not my, my bag. Right. But this is as far as I've gotten with it. Um, but what happens is and that doesn't matter at all until you get to the processing point. And because it's a weird pattern, uh, like if you use it with Lightroom, um, you have to use completely different specifications if you use sharpening at all. If you don't, then the 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 way that those images react to Lightroom's sharpening is is just so extreme mm-hmm. and so horrible. It, it looks wormy. Wormy. That sounds gross. Yeah. Like if, and so it, it it's almost like watercolory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, like the it way almost the, looks like a the way that cell phone sharpening can sometimes look. It's, it's, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like that, but the cell phone is, is, well, no, actually the cell phone is definitely watercolory and this is kind of more like a worm, like an old Photoshop paint fil- filter or something. Right. Um, do you remember Topaz Labs? Yes, for sure. They had some effects that they, you know, when they first kind of came around and they just had this kind of just painterly kind of really awful Thing. It, it actually has a similar effect to that, but I mean, it's less than that. Like you can almost, it's almost imperceptible at, you know, like if you're viewing it at normal uh, viewing percent, you know, uh, resolutions. But like when you look at it a hundred percent, it's just like, oh my God, my eyes, <laughs> it's so bad. And, you know, the thing is that I see all the time is that people adapt to a Fuji because they're like, oh God, this is cheaper and lighter and like, oh my, <laughs> it's sexy. And like, yeah, I'm doing this. And they might move from a Canon or Nikon, and then you know they're they're doing everything else the same. You know they're processing the same, they're shooting the same, and you know they they stumble pretty badly. So speaking of processing, though, have you looked into Capture One at all since we talked last? That was like a big theme of our, our conversations a while ago. Are you still full on Lightroom? Have you tried moving around at all? Or I have not tried at all yet. I, I still think about it a lot. One of my team members, uh, Leandro Crespi, who you know, he's he loves it and he talks about it a lot. And 
know, he's definitely the guy on my team that's like, you guys should all adapt. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, the my reality is, is that Lightroom works really well for me and I don't have the time to to learn anything. Yeah. It's just so, the same as same you thing we said last time. Switching. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's the same thing you're talking about, about switching brands for cameras. Yep. You know, yep. just, Momentum. That's part of yeah. something I've been thinking about with, uh, I've been testing out the new iPad Pro and a lot of questions come through about, you know, can you replace your laptop with an iPad? Um, and I'm hoping to do a video about this. And the, the biggest thing is that if you have an existing workflow, you would really struggle to adapt to a whole new, like to move everything over. That would be very challenging. But if you are a new photographer and you don't have these workflows in place and you don't have these learned behaviors or years of habits to um, try to unlearn, it could be pretty easy to get started just working with an iPad or a touch interface Mm -hmm. or with, you know, without using Lightroom and just using Affinity Affinity Photo and um, what's the other one that's like Lightroom that's cheaper? Uh, You know, just all the other options that are out there. There's a lot of really great tools that I think is what the next generation is going to start. Like I think about affinity, especially Mm -hmm. if I was um, just starting out, if I was just coming out of high school, I wanted to get into photography. I know that I need to learn some more serious editing skills. Would I go out and try to pirate Photoshop CC, which is what we all did back in the day. But now it's, I'm sure. No, we didn't. Well, I'm sure it's way harder now. (laughs) These things, they can't come after us now, right? This is like 20 years ago. (laughs) But, uh, you know, now it's like, I don't even know how you would. I don't, I don't think it's nearly as common for people to be uh, trying to get the software for free. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just, I imagine it's enough more difficult that it happens less. And meanwhile, you've got affinity out there that's like 20, 40 bucks. I, I, I kind of, I know for iPad, it's 20 bucks. I think desktop, it might be more, but very affordable comparatively. It's not a subscription subscription. You can just buy it once and comparing those like, yeah, I would totally go out and get the cheaper, very capable software. And maybe it doesn't do everything Photoshop does, but you won't find those differences for a few years. And by the time you discover what else Photoshop can do, affinity might've caught up. So For a younger generation, a lot of these differences are less significant than they are for us. Uh, And I think this applies to mirrorless and all these other technologies that we can feel the limitations right now. Very soon, the people that are learning today are not going to have that same awareness of of what they are, you know, quote unquote, missing. Well, and the software is likely to catch up too, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Whatever I'm complaining about is missing now. It's going to be there soon, so... But I guess that doesn't apply to Capture One. Capture One's you know similarly expensive to Lightroom. I'm kind of amazed by how similar the tools, like the icons and everything, look on Affinity right. and Photoshop. Yeah, it feels kind of dirty. It's <laughs> I don't know. I, so I spent some time on the iPad one, and I, I haven't used the desktop, but on the iPad, it really feels like they rethought a lot of things. Um, so I guess I can't speak to the desktop one, but. Um, I don't know. They, I can tell they were rethinking some paradigms and tr- trying to reinvent some stuff. Um, I'm not sure if you caught it in one of the episodes of the other podcast. Uh, Kelly Thompson was saying he's moved entirely to Affinity. That's when I decided to take a more serious look at it. Um, when, oh. we, you know, when I'm like, oh, somebody that has been on Photoshop for 30 years um, is considering moving or has moved, has completely dropped the Adobe package. That's, you know, it says something. So, Well, I think the good thing about 
doing something like that is that it feels to me that like I'd be more likely to to learn the whole program, mm-hmm. you know, to to literally try to pick apart everything and figure out like what what it does at this point. Whereas like I feel like a lot of this stuff that's come out for Photoshop since I started, a lot of the new things I probably don't even know about because I just stopped keeping up with all of the the advancement. Right. Like certain things, like you know, that were photo specific. You know, like content aware, for instance. Right. You know, it's not going to pass those things up, but I feel like there's just a lot of things I don't know. And sometimes I don't care, and other times I wish that I really did. It de- yeah, it, it totally depends. I mean, and there's also some stuff that I've started to feel like I can really see the age of Photoshop. The best example, I was complaining about this on Twitter, and I couldn't get Adobe to take the problem seriously, <laughs> is their hue saturation adjustments. So if you want to do targeted color adjustments in Photoshop, yeah, it's actually pretty ugly. Like if you, you know, let's say you're, you select your reds and you're like, okay, reds are everything between this kind of orange and this kind of magenta. That's what I'm going to define as reds. I'm going to bring up the saturation this much and move them slightly towards the green, right? Like, do those mm-hmm. corrections make sense the way I'm describing it? Uh, absolutely. So 100%. you can do all that stuff with the hue saturation adjustments method layer adjustment layer let's call it a layer if you're doing it that way mm-hmm. um but the actual algorithm that operates on the colors is super aggressive it's not intelligent so it'll start to clip those reds it'll start to turn them very ugly and it'll start to bring out all this like macro blocking and see you'll start seeing pixels fall apart even on a raw image it can start to really damage the file in a way that mm-hmm. I know software doesn't have to do that. You could absolutely write your hue saturation adjustment to say, okay, reds start to get completely painful as the saturation gets towards 100. So there'll be this ni- there should be this nice roll off where like as we get closer to 100, reds will saturate in this certain way that is a little more appealing and breaks photos less and is just more mature and thoughtful and like the things that i see when i move that stuff is what happened in the night it looks like the 90s to me it looks like old technology Um, clown car yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. and this is just you know it's not i i think from what i've seen it looks like capture one is beyond that like they are they're being smarter about this stuff and more that is exactly the thing that people have told me is is the major advantage is color separation yeah uh which is I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, obviously it's important to you because you're talking about it. But for me, it's like crazy important. Yeah, it's one of the main ways I give a look to a photo. It is the main way. It is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's where the that's the secret sauce, right? Yeah, totally. It used um, to be. I, I think we used to think it was just curves, and I say we as in everybody, everybody I talked to. Yeah, it was like we. Yeah. we would um, move the, we'd lower the. Uh, we'd make the shadows more cyan and the highlights a little more yellow. And we'd kind of have this complicated few levels of, of tone curves, which are uh, adding some contrast and lifting our blacks and whatever. There's all this stuff we'd be adjusting, <laughs> but all of a sudden you well, realize, really... you realize you're only working in one dimension dimension when you're hitting the tone curves, you know, your blue is still the same kind of blue. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like that approach to it, is so dated and I, I still see like iPhone apps that only do curve adjustments 
and it's like you're completely <laughs> missing out. And you can't you can't do so many interesting things if you're not doing you know huge separation stuff. Well, and and at this point, I think I've I've largely just backed away from the iPhone uh, in terms of making photos and and processing them because I for that exact reason. Oh man, I'm actually it just doesn't. <laughs> Oh, well, it just doesn't, I can't match everything else in a way that I, I like, right? you know, and I'm, and I'm like, maybe I could, if I invested more into looking at different ways to do it, mm-hmm. but I just, I just don't feel it's there. Um, but I, I wanted to say about exactly what you're talking about with using the hue saturation lightness sliders. I find myself, especially when I'm f- fixing uh, expired film <laughs> scans. I find myself using a combination of the um, those filters uh, along with uh, the calibration controls for the red primary, green primary, blue primary. Totally, you know yeah. What I mean? yep, yep, I do that. Um, and then sometimes, even then, going into the the color channel curves and making adjustments there. Yep. Like I feel like it's it's just like this. It's like an orchestra, mm-hmm. you know, you're orchestrating all these different things. And then, you know, I talked to, to Leandro about capture one and he's, you know, he's just like, Oh, you, you just, you do so much less work yeah, using capture. One. Totally. It should be in one place. The calibration thing you're talking about is this sort of secret. I mean, it's not, it's not really a secret, but it's not commonly used. And it's a little, whenever I'm adjusting, it feels like dark magic. Like I don't really understand <laughs> what, is going to like why those are even there. I don't know what those sliders are supposed to do. I know what happens as I change them, but I'm like, this, mm-hmm. these don't make sense. Why are these sliders here? Why is this not part of the HSL pipeline? Like it would make so much more sense for this all to be in one much more flexible dynamic tool instead of breaking it apart into something that is just so illogical. Like it just doesn't make sense. It, it definitely feels like it's an overcomplication of something. Um, but as far as Lightroom is concerned, I think that that's where the, the secret is, um, between making a photo that doesn't look digital into something else. But that's the, it's a, to me, if it is a secret at this point, like after all this time of all of us spending so much time learning about this, if it's still a secret, that's poor design because I don't disagree. We should be able to find, we should be able to find that, you know, I mean, so if you look at like what VSCO has done um, on their mm-hmm. app, uh, you know, there's some things that I, th- I think can be frustrating in how they've given a really specific look to everybody in the world. Like you can see v- v- VSCO's impact on colors is enormous. And sometimes it's frustrating when it's used in laziness. But what I give them a lot of credit for is having a very clear understanding of of those subtleties I was just talking about, like, this is how colors should be adjusted. Like, you want to move, as you saturate a blue, you want to do it in this certain way. And I've always found the controls within VSCO, although they're not as mm, robust as you might hope, like you can't do infinite stuff with them, they always give you pretty good results. They don't hurt your image that much. Um I don't remember where I was going to go with that. Oh, right. But so VSO just exposes it in a way that like you can get that film look with tools that you can always find. Like they're right in front of you. Um, whereas I feel like trying to get to those same places inside of Lightroom, you got to just, you just have to know. Like somebody had to tell you, <laughs> go find, well, you, you know. That's right. You'd have to have a lot of experience 
Well, here, so somebody somebody out there probably has no idea what we're talking about. So let's try to like break the secret to someone there. So if you scroll down to the bottom of the development, um, what do you call it? Section module module. There is an area called calibration, and inside there are a few sliders. I'm not looking at it right now. Are you looking at it? And you've never opened it before. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just trying to say it off of memory. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Okay, so you describe it further yeah. I'm, while I launch my Lightroom here. So what it? Yeah, so when you open up that that section of the module, uh, it gives you process versions, which um, now it just says version one, two, three, and four. Four being current, and the other ones being older versions. Uh, it used to be that it would attempt to calibrate specific camera models um, or sensors. Uh, do you remember that? Uh, yeah, like which they've moved out into profiles in now. Like, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it gives you four sets of controls. It gives you uh, a shadow tint, uh, being from green, uh, the green to magenta. It gives you a red primary, green primary, and blue primary. And each one of these, you can change the the tone or the tint, I guess, um, of those primary colors. And the thing that makes it really confusing is that because it's it's computer vision and not human vision, sometimes you move the red primary and it changes all the greens and you know, vice versa. And it can be really I don't know what the hell it's doing. frustrating and, and complicated to figure out. Most people just look at it and if they start playing with it, they're like they're either like, oh, this is fun, and then they dig in, or or they'd just be like, oh my god, I'm never touching that again. Well, and there's sort of like a very... You don't need to do a lot of different things that I find typically you're doing the same thing every time. And that the biggest one, I think, is moving the greens toward... Or sorry, move the blues towards green. Um, like, that's pretty common to get a bit of a filmic look, is like slightly more cyan blues, especially for skies. Um, but definitely not more purple. Mm-hmm. Like not not extremely cyan, but just less purple. Like literally, like less than five. Points. Yeah, just bump bumping it over a little bit, and then yeah. uh, I I think hmm, is a little it, does a lot. I, so I actually I'm not logged into my Photoshop on this computer, so I can't actually open and see what my usual settings are. But then I think what uh, reds often like bumping up the saturation a little. But okay, here's a question though. Do you and I don't know if you understand. What are these doing that is different from HSL? Because as we're describing it, I'm like, yeah, we're just describing the HSL sliders. Like, yeah, you move it, you move the tint to this direction or the other of the red, green, and blue values. You move the saturation up and down. That's all in HSL. Why is there another uh, module for it? We should have we, we should have asked Rob to join us. Yeah. No, I bet I don't even <laughs> think Rob knows. Let's let's see. That'd be the ultimate test. If Rob knows, then he's truly uh, he's in the top three human beings. We'll we'll bump him up. Yeah. No, I don't, I honestly, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's you know, weird. I, I think that when you're building a profile, I think what it is, is it's, it's, it's your, what's the word? It's your foundation, mm-hmm. right? So I think that, that using the calibration would be your first step, which is not intuitive yeah. in the way that it's built into the module. Cause it's at the bottom and the Lightroom module is built to start from the top and work your way down. So I mean, it's that's the that's the theory behind it is that you start from the very top and you work your way down. Yeah. So you know, starting from the bottom. I mean, I, maybe that's by design because it's one of those things that you're maybe supposed to do to taste and then create your own preset and save that for all of those photos that you shoot under those conditions. Yeah, I just also right? realized I think that's missing from Lightroom CC. 
which is strange. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt us and uh, say <laughs> and look at the time and say that this would be a great time to tell me about something you like. What do I like? Oh uh, yeah, you didn't prepare, did you? I didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I, I I've liked some TV recently. Go for it. I can yeah, do t- um, I can do TV. I watched a bit of TV lately. Yeah, there's been a couple shows that that I was I mean cuz I honestly so so often watch TV so passively that I will kind of watch it <laughs> and also maybe like scroll Twitter or Instagram at the same time and not really be super paying attention uh which I think sucks, mm-hmm. right? It's so disrespectful. Um but guilty. And you know, there's been a couple shows that have really helped me break away from that habit lately. Uh, one was the, the haunting of Hill house. Uh, I've always been into, to horror. Um, and, but it's, I, I think of horror the same way I think of metal music. Like I love it so much, but I'm so crazy picky about what I like. And it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, for metal, for instance, like I might only like two or three bands a year, you know, not even new, but like only two or three albums that are put out by a band that year. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, rather than like being like, Oh, I'm so into metal that I'm like on the scene and I know all the bands, same thing about horror. Like I just don't care most of the time, but when something good comes out, like I'm all about it. Right. And this one, uh, it's it's a Netflix original, and it just it really nailed me. Um, I see ninety one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's really good. The the camera work was uh, you'd love it. I I do think. Well, I don't watch um, scary. I, I'm not into scary stuff, so I may not okay. love it. But I you would love the camera. I work. do like when they're. I mean, so I I just said that, but at the same time, like Twenty Eight Days Later is one of my favorite films. So when it works and you know i've watched a lot of walking dead and appreciated a lot of that too so see this is this is the opposite of that though okay. like this is this is like it's more rooted in character development and story plot and and stuff like that it's and then really just outstanding um art direction and camera work and i think that it's it's a shame because uh there are you know like my wife being another person just like you who's like no yeah. <laughs> i don't like scary shit period um and she just, she refused to watch it. And I, I kept coming up after watching an episode and being like, oh my God, I want to talk about this. And she was like, like, no. <laughs> and so I had to wait until the next day. And it turns out that, that like four or five different people on my team were all watching it the same week. And so we were all geeking out about it together. I haven't heard people talking about it, actually. I didn't, I, I don't even think I had heard of it. Oh, well, it's, but there's so many shows really coming exciting. out. Now. It's hard to, it's hard to keep up. It's so hard. Yeah. Right. So that was one. And, uh, then the other one that really got me was the third series of daredevil, um, which I wasn't expecting. Actually, I was expecting it to be bad, I, which I, I didn't catch the daredevil bug. I kind of tried it and was like, I'm not seeing what everybody's, what everybody else is seeing. I remember the first season being like, really surprised by how good it was. And let me, let me preface this with uh, Daredevil was one of my favorite comic book characters growing up. And I, I, in fact, I was the only kid that I knew that liked Daredevil. Like everybody else thought it was, he was a lame character. They're like, I don't get it. 
you know, and I was just like, oh, he's the realist, mm. <laughs> you know, I was like, mm-hmm. I really dig him, um, you know, and I liked Spider-Man too, but like, you know, it just seemed kind of ridiculous, right? Because it is, but it's also awesome, but it's also ridiculous. So I always liked Daredevil. So I'll preface it with that. So maybe I was biased. <clears throat> but the first season, I was really surprised by the quality. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So And then I watched Jessica Jones, which is um, connected, like the storylines intersect. And then did, Luke Cage did, did, as well. Did you like Jessica Jones and, and I guess Luke Cage didn't watch any of that? Because I, so, I disliked Jessica Jones and everybody so, else liked it. And I feel like I'm a crazy person. No. So I, I'll say this, that the first season, like I watched it and I wasn't sure if I liked it, mm-hmm. um, but I watched it. And like, I was curious because it was interconnected, you know, with Daredevil and I love Daredevil. So I was like, I'm going to give this a chance. I can tell you that the, the second season was so bad that I not only super passively watched half of it, mm-hmm. but I quit. Mm-hmm. I just stopped watching it because yeah, it was so terrible. Um, the first season of Luke Cage I thought was really good. I loved the soundtrack. Um, I, I, I loved having, you know, watching a superhero show that was, that was Afrocentric. So that was great. Yeah. That's like the second season. Once again, it was just like, wow, nobody cares. Hmm. That's just, it, it felt like that there was just no investment from the artists, but Daredevil and not was, even uh, following through and getting it right. Yeah, and I'm not even talking about like the, the actors. Like, I don't blame the actors for that folly. I just blame like the producers. Like the the, the plots, the storyline, everything was just weak as hell, and it was full of like stereotypes and all kinds of shit. That was just like no, no. And Daredevil. So I wasn't expecting much, and honestly, like I I waited a little while before I started it up, and I was just anticipating. You know, like I just needed a new show, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like anticipating not being into it. And damn, it was just so good. It's just so, so good. Well, I mean, and it like when it ended, I was like, damn it. <laughs> I haven't permanently given up on Daredevil. I got to, I intentionally watched it to the point of the hallway fight scene that I had heard so much about. I was like, okay, I got to see this. And that was awesome. And then I kind of, oh. I just, I don't watch, I don't watch TV a lot. So I got there and then I just didn't come back to it. Um, so maybe my, maybe my bad for not investing properly. So <laughs> there is a prison fight scene in this, in the third season that. Oh, so now I got to keep just, watching till I get to the, uh, you just, you just trapped me and committed me to another. Oh, uh, it's, it's one of the, the coolest scenes I think I've ever, you know, watched movie, TV, whatever. Like it just, it was just unreal. Cool. So, so good. Well, I'm on I'm on record for only watching I you know I'd probably watch two full seasons of a show or like two shows a year where I like do a, a full season or maybe two seasons depending on how much there is. But um, I don't watch a lot of things, so I I'm, I'll I'll give it a shot. I'll come back to it. I hope you do because I want you to tell me whether or not you liked yeah. it. Um, well, and so mine. It, it, here's the other thing: people have to tell me something's good for years before I actually get around to it. Cause I need to feel like I'm pretty certain I'm going to get what I want out of it. So I just recently finally got around to Mr. Robot. I, mm. I had a sense that I probably would like it because it's on themes that I am interested in. And uh, so I'm, you know, a little late in recommend. I mean, I guess same with Daredevil, like what we're three seasons into Mr. Robot. Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, it's also a late recommendation as well, but, but I have been watching it and I, I have been enjoying it and um, I, I have some criticisms of it, but I feel like I would spoil it to really say any, say what they are. So I don't know if I can really go there. But instead, okay, so instead, I'm gonna, my pick things will be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do two like you did. One is, uh, I've been meaning to talk about, did I talk about Pup last time we were? No. Okay, so I, I'm into a loud band this year that I've been listening to probably the most this year. They're not, they're not new. The album's not new. Pup is a Canadian band from Vancouver. And if you watch their music videos, they have the kid from Stranger Things, the, the lead boy is uh, kind of the star of two of the music videos that has like a connecting story that's pretty awesome. And it's like, um, it's, uh, you know, there's bits of hardcore, bits of little bits of like, I was going to say pop punk, but that would be a, a stretch. Just like very hooky, loud, screaming punk that I miss. Um, it reminded me of, I don't know if you ever heard of like Monine, um or just, I don't know, some like very loud bands I used to love and was missing. Oh, no, Get Up Kids. It, it oh, yeah. It's like a louder version of the Get Up Kids. Cool. And uh, yeah, so I've just like, I've had that album on repeat all year. So recommendation for Pup, and especially at least check out the music videos featuring that kid. Um, I'll throw all this in the show notes. I've already put it up on on my, my queue. Sweet. I've got it ready to go for one week. And then super strong recommendation for Spider-Man for PlayStation 4. I same same as TV shows, I only get to play, you know, two or three games a year. Uh, I beat Uncharted 4 a little while ago and really like that. I'm way too late to recommend it though. So, a more current game, yeah, Spider-Man 4 for PS4. So good. Like for a single player experience, which is the kind of game I enjoy is like just a story, not too long, not too crazy in depth sort of linear like there it guides you in a direction but it's still a huge beautiful open world um it is just so strong there are so few bad things to say about it um have you have you played it by chance i only have the xbox one oh right i'm one of those people i'm it's like yeah it, the it's Nike, like the same thing as nike totally. <laughs> well that's what makes us uh good podcasters together we we can represent <laughs> both sides but in this one case, I, I feel kind of bad for you because this is a pretty great, great game. And I think it's going to stay exclusive. It probably won't. I, I don't think they'll port it at any point. You know what's really annoying about it? <laughs> it's almost the same reasons. I, I like Xbox because I like the controller better. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. I I, I, I can uh, see that. I think I like PlayStation controller. Same here, actually. That's because I had PlayStation earlier. So it just feels more right because I was on it longer. So... Yeah, as with so many things. Yeah, but yeah, I just I gotta say, like, I do. I have no regrets about that being my choice of what to commit my time to playing. I I had also picked up God of War. I thought that was gonna be my next game after Uncharted, and after an hour or two, I was like, it's it's clearly good. I probably will get to it after Spider Man, but as soon as Spider Man came out, I had to play it, and I just I want to keep playing it. It it pulls me in in a way that. It's good. It's a good it's sign of a good game, and that you just want to screw around in it too. It's great for just turning on for five minutes, and you just swing around for a while. Like there's never been a better representation of what it feels like to swing a Spider Man. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, they really. That sounds fun. I mean, honestly, if you even if you don't do any of the missions or follow the story, like the swinging is designed to just keep you moving and just keep building up as much momentum as you can. Like it doesn't 
want to make it difficult. It, it wants to let you feel really free. So an interesting example of it is they. I, I, list, I watched an interview with the developers talking about how a, a big obstacle is designing New York City with the fire escapes that are everywhere, but how does Spider-Man keep moving, right? So he's got to climb walls and he's got to uh, run across walls and be able to do all this stuff, but a fire escape would just kind of stop him. Like it, in real life, it would be a challenge. So they made all these really specific animations just for any time he hits a fire escape from different angles. So if you're running up the side of a building, he'll start slinging webs and pulling himself up the fire escape really fast. Or if you're running um, sideways on a building, he'll dive through them, like do this really quick, you know, nimble Spider-Man dive through it. So just nothing slows you down. You can just keep moving and it feels really good. So that sounds amazing. It's super fun. I'm really glad we did this. Finally. Okay. The show's, the show's not dead. It is still alive. Look at that. Uh, I don't know when the next one will be, but we'll, we'll try to make some time for it. If you want, we have re- relit the torch. Yeah, if you want to hear it, uh, you know, hit us up on Twitter. Where, where are you on Twitter? I, I never d- tell me cause I always forget. It's cam rocker. C A M R O C K E. And that's mostly like a political account, right? <laughs> that's your new, I, that's where you've been moving into is political journalism. Yeah. I mean, I do live in the United States. Yeah, that's true. How, can, are, how can you not be into politics? We in are US? basically like my entire like way of life is being threatened right now. Yeah. So well, yeah, keep fighting I the good fight. I talk about that shit sometimes. Yeah. Cool, man. See you next time. Yeah.